Here's Barnes in the middle space. Aldridge ahead of him. Rush inside him. Barnes Michael all the way. It's in the back of the net. John Barnes. You're listening to the Robbie Fowler Podcast. Powered by McDonald's. Hi all, welcome to another edition of the Robbie Fowler Podcast, brought to you by our good friends McDonald's UAE and McDonald's McCafe. Great tasting coffee, made simple. Myself, Chris McCarty, back with a gaffer, and I call him gaffer now because he is, it's Robbie Fowler. Rob Sturt, you're back in Blighty. How are you, my man? I'm not too bad. I'm still a little bit tired and jet-lagged, but yeah, I'm, I'm okay, Chris. I'm, I'm looking forward to watching football at reasonable times now, so I'm okay. And that tan of yours has died down a bit since getting back to the Whittle. I'm one of them, right? I'll have a lovely time when I'm abroad, right? And as soon as I get on the plane, it just disappears. It just goes. I actually don't know what happens. I'm like Casper. I'm like Casper the Ghost now. Oh, mate, if you're like Casper the Ghost, I don't know what I am. But listen, I want to want to touch on your time in the You are back home. You're back with the wife and the kids. And you've got to share this little tale because I was, uh, well, I was nearly wetting myself with the story that you shared on WhatsApp because you get to the airport, you're heading on home, you've been away from loved ones for four and a half months. And what happened, Rob? <laughs> well, I mean, I'll go back a little bit. So when I came back from Australia, so obviously that was the start of the pandemic as, as it was. Uh, and I was, I mean, horrendously trying to get back. You know, I tried every avenue and all the Asian airports were closed. So I ended up going via LA, which was, I mean, to get from door to door was 50 hours uh, from Australia. But I'm thinking, ah, coming back from India won't be too bad. You know, it'll just be the, obviously the one flight into London and then back. Hey, but oh, listen, things things are different over there, shall I say. Obviously, we've had uh, lots of, lots of, um, I think, problems with the referees this year. So uh, I think that, I'm not sure whether they're friends with the people in the higher places in the immigration over there, but we've uh, we left Goa, so we had a flight to uh, to Bengaluru, uh, Bangalore, I think it was, uh, which is an hour flight. Then we wait in the airport for seven hours, uh, and then obviously we fly into London, and then getting the short connection back to Manchester, and then obviously a short drive home. But it does me flight, so leaves the hotel, does me flight from Bangalore to, um, uh, sorry, from from Goa to Bangalore. Uh, and I'm waiting at the airport, just about to go through Goa. I've got seven hours, and then they stop me. I haven't got the correct form to leave the country, so I'm thinking, ah, it'll be okay. I've, you know, they'll, they'll they'll keep me until until the 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 latest possible time, and then just let me on the flight. So there's myself, Tony Grant, who's obviously my assistant. Uh, I'm a goal uh, I'm a goalkeeper coach, Bobby Mims. So we get um, we get in the immigration. They stop us, and then. Um, just waiting round, obviously no no correct forms, and then the, the flight is seven eight seven a.m. So come six o'clock, uh, six a.m., the uh, one of the immigration uh, immigration officials just stops us and says, uh, "Well, we're actually unloading your bags," and I'm like, "What? You know, is, is this <laughs> is this an absolute wind up?" I mean, I I see these programs all the time, and I'm thinking that'll never happen to me. And I, I think, how hard is it to get out of a country? How hard is it to leave this country? And I'm just thinking. These officials, right, who I've had problems with all year, I've definitely got mates in immigration. So I I struggle to get, um, I'm thinking, oh, what, what shit, what do I do now? And then he said, well, well you have to go out of here. You have to get your bags, go out of here, get this form, and obviously we'll try and get you another flight. So I'm like, well, when's the next flight? And he go, well, I don't really know, but it might be two or three weeks before you can get the, the right form. So I'm thinking, wow. It can't get any worse, this. So eventually, the uh, the, the club have obviously 
contacted a few people. I've, I've managed to get the form. Uh, I get goes to the hotel at nine thirty in, in the in the morning uh, with my bags. I, I had to wait another hour and a half for my bags. Uh, get to the hotel as a as a two hour sleep. Then I'm back to the airport, obviously waiting for the flights. Uh, then I had to fly up to Delhi, which was three hours. Wait in the airport for three hours again. Uh, and then from uh, Delhi, a direct flight into London, and then obviously uh, waiting in the immigration in London as well. So my flight home from India was actually worse than my flight home from Australia. And I was like, wow, it can't be any worse than that. And it was. It was horrendous. And honestly, I, I actually believe that someone, yeah, well, I shouldn't really say honestly, but I wouldn't be surprised, I should say, if, uh, if someone from the AIFF has got friends in high places in immigration just stop me from leaving the country. Either that or there's a couple of Man United fans high-fiving one another well, at the well, airport. Well, well, you just get everywhere, you Man United fans, Chris, don't you? So probably, uh, that could possibly be the case as well. But listen, in all seriousness, though, you are home now. You are back with the family. One year done and dusted with East Bengal. For anyone new to the podcast, you've been over there for four and a half months. And what's the plan now moving forward, Rob? You've got another year on your contract? Yeah, I've got one more year left, mate. Um, and regardless of what people think, you know, I, I think this year was, was relatively successful. Uh, we took over a team who, who should have been in the, in the league below. Uh, you know, we had a squad of 29 players. Only five of those players had, had ISL experience. Um, so, yeah, for us not to finish bottom, for me, was an achievement. Um, and, and look, you know, you, you probably might get the uh, East Bengal fans who, who are not happy with that. But look, you know, it is what it is, and it's me being honest. Uh, and I've probably got into a little bit of trouble this year because I have been a little bit too honest with the, uh, with the officials and uh, you know, and, and the various people um, you know connected with with the club and, and with the ISL. But look, it is what it is, and you know, we, we were we were very good to a point. You know, four games to go, we were in with a shout of uh, you know reaching the playoffs. Uh, we had some unbelievably uh you know adverse decisions going going against us but uh you know we dealt with it uh so four games to go we, we had a chance we won nil up playing against a team who were just above us uh, if we won it we'd have gone two points behind and and that obviously confidence booster as we all know is uh is huge in football uh and, 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 and i fancied us i'd have backed ourselves to be fair and uh we ended up uh, drawing the game 1-1, one, one, uh, one nil up with five minutes to go. One of our players goes round the referee. You know, one of the most blatant fouls you've ever seen in your life. Referee waves play on. Uh, round the goalkeeper. Round the goalkeeper. Ra- ra- yeah, round the goalkeeper. Referee waves play on. And uh, they break away, you know, five minutes later in injury time and, and score an equaliser. And that just uh, put the real kibosh on, on our season. And then, of course, probably led to you getting in more trouble with the referees and all of that. But listen, Rob, you are back next year, though. You can safely say that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm due to go back. Uh, that, that's the, uh, you know, the premise. So we've got a little bit of, a, a little bit of an issue at the minute. So uh, in terms of we need you know, a lot more players, um, obviously Indian players and uh, foreign players as well. So uh, effectively, again, we're, we're starting from scratch. So any footballers listening to this, CVs in to Robbie Fowler at hotmail.com? You've got to be decent, though, Chris. Hey. <laughs> Here, listen, I can do a job in bins if required, my man. I can, I'm, I'll happily help you out if you need someone. Right, you, you're signed. <laughs> you're signed. <laughs> listen, talking, talking of management, and we're going to get to our special guest in just a moment. I want to get your thoughts. There's so much to get your thoughts on this week in actual fact, and we'll come to your beloved Liverpool in just a few moments' time. What about Stevie G? He was a Episode 6, I believe it was, going great guns, an awful lot of downloads on our Stephen Gerrard episode, an awful lot of views on YouTube as well. If you haven't checked it out, do head to that. I thought Stephen spoke magnificently with us. 
a champion now up in Scotland, uh, a league winner with Rangers Football Club. Give me your appraisal on that achievement, Rob. It's incredible. It is. Uh, and, and to be fair, at the start of the season, I didn't really see it in all honesty because obviously Celtic have... Celtic, in all honesty, have been great for, for years, haven't they? Uh, OK, they might not have been the Celtic that we've seen in the past, but I think as, as regards to Stephen going up there, um, and, and look, he had a tough start, in all fairness. You know, I think um, a lot of the, uh, the Europa League runs maybe got him out of danger a little bit because obviously the league form wasn't great. Uh, but again, the club have stuck by him, the fans have stuck by him. Uh, and it, it's absolutely paying dividends now because, you know, he's got them playing really well. He's got them organised. He's, he's got them... He's got them winning games at a canter. Uh, you, you look at a game, obviously the last game, St Mirren, and you know the, the game was effectively over after two minutes, and that was a game they needed to win to, you know, to basically win the league. So uh, Stephen is uh, a fantastic manager. He's going to be a great manager no matter where he goes. He has got the, his team playing for him. Uh, I've spoke about it before, Chris, in terms of getting the right staff behind it. He's done that. Uh, what I will say about him as well, he's he's spent a little bit of money. Uh, and Rangers have massively backed them uh, in that way as well. And, and fair play to the club for doing that because obviously they've seen something in Stephen that you know to give him the the uh, you know the, the the balls if you like to go out there and and do what he's needed to do. Uh, and not only is he uh, performing in the league, you know he, he's performing miracles in, uh, in in European football as well. And they, they look good in that. They're through to the next stage of um, you know of of that competition as well. Um, and you know what? I'm absolutely made up for him. I really am. You know, we had him, you know, a few weeks ago speaking, and you could see the the hunger, you could see the desire, you could see the belief, or you could hear all those. I should say sorry. Uh, and it's just a, an incredible achievement to do what he's done to a team who have, um, you know, let's let's be honest, have been, you know, have sank to the the real depths of 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 the ocean, if you like. And uh, you know, he's got them back up now, and he's got them back up to where. Many, many people believed he should be. Uh, and, and you know what? Absolute fair play to him. He's, he's been outstanding up there. It's a question, Rob, that's been asked time and time again. And I think we skirted the subject with Stephen because, let's be frank, I knew the answer he would give us. He would never put his name and, and nail his colours to the mast in that regard. In your belief, though, Rob, as a man that knows Stephen, as a Liverpool legend, as a fan still of the club, is he destined to replace Jurgen Klopp as Liverpool manager? <sighs> I mean, it's an horrible question. Cause I, I, I mean, I, I know the answer, and the answer's of course, yeah. But I mean, I want Jürgen to stay for a long time. Uh, if Jürgen stays for a long time, that means our club and my club. You like to say? <laughs> you like the way I said our club? <laughs> you, you like that? <laughs> don't you? I'm not part of uh, that. But that means Jürgen's successful. Uh, so I want Jürgen to stay for a long time. But look, I think the way you see Steven and the way uh, the way he's performed at Rangers, which is obviously a, a huge club, then. I mean, that question is always going to get asked. Uh, and the the answer is obvious. You know, it really is. I think, you know, he's probably next in line, um, you know, in all honesty. Uh, but, I mean, it wouldn't be... I mean, I hope it's not for a, a good few years, in all honesty. Uh, and you, you can see him staying up at Rangers for a little bit longer anyway and, and you know, winning absolutely everything up there. You know, that that's probably what he'll want to do. So, uh, of course, he'll have... And he won't really admit this because he's got like a job to do at Rangers. But of course, he'll have ambition to go and you know manage in the in the Premier League. He he won't admit that, but you know you can more or less guarantee you know Stephen has has got these aspirations and ambitions to to go manage in the Premier League. And and why wouldn't he want to do it with Liverpool? You know, it's a it's a it's a club where he is. 
well, he's been brought up. He supports the club. You know, he loves the club. Um, you know, and he's been a player for you know for for years and years. He's he's done his bit in the in the academy as a coach. Okay, he's been away now and uh, in LA and obviously up at Rangers and and obviously coached up there and managed up there. Uh, but look, I think the obvious answer is yes. I think uh, lots of Liverpool fans would love to see him. That 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 is that is the obvious answer, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. And watch this space on that front. Now you've trumpeted the endeavours of Stephen Gerrard there. I'm going to do likewise for this podcast because I was doing research today ahead of our, our special guest John Barnes, who will be with us momentarily. And there was a survey done back in 2006, Rob. The 100 players who shock or who shook the cop was the title. 110,000 plus fans took to the website to vote. In at number one was Sir Kenneth. In at number two was the man you just mentioned there, Stephen Gerrard. Number three was our guest last week, Ian Rush. You, Robert, were in at number four. And in at number five was our guest this week, John Barnes. That is a heck of a roll call. And they've all been on this podcast inside nine, nine episodes. Brilliant, isn't it? It's bloody I'm, brilliant. I'm, listen, I, listen I'm, I'm just obviously very egotistically. I mean, I'm happy with being number four. Hey, that's, he- that's brilliant. I I normally come first, Chris, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you you take number four all day long. That is esteemed company, Rob. It really is. Well, when I've said, look, I think when you when you look at the the history of Liverpool and all the great players they've had and and all the the achievements that they've won, uh, you've got obviously uh, Sir King Kenny number one, uh, and obviously um, Stephen is number two. Arguably, people could say, in arguably the greatest players. Uh, Rushy, what he's achieved is is unbelievable. So for me to come after them is brilliant, and for me to be ahead of this player is, I mean, is, I, th- I think is astonishing as well. So I, I I love this fella coming up. He he's absolutely brilliant, and uh, yeah, and for me t- for me to be slightly ahead of him, I mean, it, it's amazing. I, it was probably that that one vote from my mum that just got me across. <laughs> Well, let's talk about John Barnes if we can, because before, and he will be joining us any moment now, uh, I was interested to read that Jamie Carragher's gone on record as stating he's the best player that he ever played with. Peter Beardsley's gone on record to say, listen, there was a three, four year period at the end of the 1980s where John Barnes was arguably probably up there with Diego Maradona as the two best players on the planet. I mean, you played with him. He was coming towards the end of his Liverpool career. I think, was it Souness, or he moved centrally towards the end of his decade. But your memories of John, give us a story or two. Uh, well, I, I think Carrad's probably nailed there. And you've just mentioned Peter Beasley played. When you when you are talking about players who've played with him and then you, you get an accolade like that, then I don't think you can get any better. I think Carrad was probably a little bit later than me in terms of coming into the team. So he's seen a different aspect to what Beardsley would have seen. And he's still seeing, saying that he's absolutely brilliant. And I totally get that. I really was. And, and what I loved about John Barnes is he made the game look easy. He simplified everything and um, he just controlled. He controlled games. Now, he wasn't, when I played him, he wasn't the, the marauding John Barnes running down the left, you know, beating everyone and, you know, putting balls on a on a sixpence for the likes of Rushy or, or, or John Eldridge. Um, but he just controlled games. You know, he played the game at his pace. Uh, his experience rubbed off on everyone. Uh, and he was just, a, he, he was a real good teammate as well. He really was. But to say that he was incredible as, as a centre midfielder for, for us w- was brilliant. When you think of the career he had in terms of being a, a left midfielder, you know, 
you know, being that one who, I mean, you look at the, a lot of the goals Ian Rush scored, a lot of the goals John Alden scored, um, and you know, a lot of balls into the box from John Barnes. Who, um, I mean, I'm sure. Well, we might not get him on, but Jason McAteer talked about um, like buffet balls. Now, John Barnes was the master of buffet balls. Now, for those who don't know what a buffet ball is, it's someone who puts the ball into the box and just says to that striker, go on, son, go and help yourself. <laughs> <laughs> right. right, And uh, that's what John Barnes was. He, he was the epitome of Mr. Buffet. He was, honestly, he just said, go and help yourself, son, and go, go and add a, a, add a little few more goals to your tally. He, he, was, he, was, he was sensational. Yeah, I mean, I'm a little young to remember, as you say, the marauding John Barnes. There is no doubt, though. Is... You said that, you're a little younger. You said that with a straight face there as well, didn't you? I, I, I know. I, Rob, I promise you, I've showed you, my, I've showed you my ID. 1986 was the year of my birth. Yeah, we, we, we can all get them, can't we? <laughs> hey, we can all yeah. get them. In the world, probably easier than other places as well, <laughs> to be fair. But uh, listen, I, I remember him, though, and he was. He was someone that on the football field, he carried an aura around him. You know, he had the ability to go left and to go right. He had the ability, a bit like Ryan Giggs, when Giggs, he moved centrally in his kind of later years at Man United. There was this, there was an ease about him on the football field, and, and, and Barnsley was like that as well. What was he like off the field, Rob, though? We talk about the great player that he was. Was he vocal in the dressing room? How was he? Yeah, I, of course he was, yeah, and obviously used his experience to, you know, to say, well, you, you do this, you do that. Um, yeah, and he, he was somebody who warranted and, and commanded respect as well. You, you just said to him he had this aura about him. So whenever, whenever he walked in a room, you sort of knew, and you, you sort of knew that you needed to be on your best behaviour, in all honesty. Uh, and look, let, let's be honest, let's not forget the uh, the, the isotonic leukoside advert as well. New isotonic leukoside, quite your first bath. <laughs> That's awful, isn't it? That's awful, isn't it? <laughs> your impressions, the Scotch one was bad. That, that was worse. New isotonic leukoside, quite your first bath. I sound, like, I sound like John Barnes with a list there, don't I? Well, you sound like more Mike Tyson than John Barnes, to be honest. <laughs> no, but he was. I mean, he, he was such a good player and he was such a good teammate as well. And uh, regardless of how old you was or, you know, how young you was, everyone was the same with him. You know, he, he was, I think he was friends and matey with everyone. So sometimes whenever you're part of a, a squad or a system, you normally get the older ones who would keep themselves themselves and the younger ones would be be uh you know in the mix with each other but you know Barnes he just went around everyone and he he was he was he, he was like he was the glue basically who kept everyone together you know he, whether you were young or old you know it didn't matter he, he went there he mixed with you and and obviously he, he socialized with everyone I mean he's a real real likable fella as well yeah, he absolutely is. I've been fortunate. I've done a couple of gigs with John up in Aberdeen, up in the northeast of Scotland, and you're absolutely right there, Rob. Even uh, up there, he enjoyed himself up there, I can tell you. This is the Robbie Fowler Podcast. Powered by McDonald's. McDonald's McCafe. Great tasting coffee. Simple. Dubai Eye 103.8. Digger, how are you? You ready? I've got headphones though, Robbie. You can hear me okay, yeah? I, I can hear you, pal. Hey, Dig, you've got to hold and give, but do it at the right time. Yeah. <laughs> got a bit of rhythm, haven't you? <laughs> Not as much rhythm as you, Dig. How are you, first and foremost, my friend? I'm very good. Yes, I'm um, on the world, which is nice. Not far from Robbie. Nice and sunny. So it's all going well. Yeah, well, we, 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 we struggle with our Wi-Fi connection, though, Dig, don't we? Well, obviously, you know, I've got one or two or three, so I've had to change mine. I don't know whether you... you uh, 
I'm a bit of a technophobe, Rob. I've got to get my 10-year-old son to show me how to do it, so I'm going to feel <laughs> So you're very lucky to even have me on this, I can tell you. If I press a button, it's going to disappear. I've, I've had to tell the kids just to, to, to stay off anything computer-related, honestly, because the Wi-Fi is just awful. Yeah, but you know, you're, you know what you're doing, don't you? You know how to, to twiddle buttons and to... I haven't got a clue. So you ask about headphones. I know if I get some headphones, the whole thing will crash. <laughs> John, just before you were joining us, Robbie and I were, were kind of reminiscing about our memories. And of course, Rob's known you a lot longer than I have. And would you believe it? Rob doesn't believe this. I'm only 34 years of age. And I remember the back end of your career where you were running a mock centre of that Liverpool midfield before your days with Newcastle. And then, of course, finishing up with Charlton. Give me your kind of appraisal of Rob, if you can, John, and your memories of playing with Rob. Robbie was a young boy. Obviously, Steve McManaman and Robbie Fowler, the two local lads who were then going to force their way into the team. But Steve was a bit older than Robbie. So he got there at first. And um, it's probably a little bit like uh, um, when Michael Owen got into the side and Steven Gerrard. Because, of course, Michael got into the side just before Steven. And they're similar ages. And I played for the last three or four games with Michael. But then people kept going on about this young Steven Gerrard. He, he had some injury problems. So I never saw the best of Steven. So, of course, why I make that comparison is, of course, you know, Steve McManaman got into the team before, but everyone was talking about this young player, Robbie Fowler, who's a bit younger than Steve, who's going to get into the Liverpool team and take over from Ian Rush. And it's difficult to actually see that because when you're playing with Ian Rush and playing in a team that that's great, you think it can't get any better. But, of course, when Robbie then got into the side, I remember looking at him and thinking, how is this kid scoring goals? You know what I mean? Because he's not six foot two, but he's good in the air. He's not lightning quick, but he's getting on the end of two balls. Um, he's not skillful like Cristiano Ronaldo but he's got so much composure in front of goal, left foot, right foot. And as I've always said about Robbie, regardless of whether, you know, Russia may have scored more goals and, and, and you look at, and I talk about other, Alan Shearer, talk about other players who may even have scored more goals than Robbie, but when you talk about a natural finisher, and when I talk about a natural finisher, I'm talking about left foot, right foot, 30 yarders, tap-ins, headers, off your shoulder. Robbie's the most naturally gifted goal scorer. Um, and I just don't know how he's done it because he's, he's little and fat with a, with a big bum. Um, <laughs> anyway, anyway, thanks for tuning in for this week's episode of the Robbie Fowler podcast. Same time next week. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, <laughs> You're opposed to that, Rob. Oh, I, I've, I've got none. I think when, uh, I mean, I, I massively rate Barnsley in terms of what he was as a player. So when you've got someone like him, you know, talking about you like that and, you know, giving you, you know, a good repost. I mean, it, from my point of view, it's brilliant. It really is because it just shows you that I've, I've done something right in my career. Um, I mean, without sounding egotistical or getting carried away. I mean, I was lucky because I played with unbelievable good players like like Barnsley and, uh, you know, I mean, he mentioned McAdair, you know, Stephen coming towards the end, um, you know, certainly of my career at Liverpool. I played with great players all the while. So when you're playing with good players, you're open a little bit of them rubs off on you. Uh, and I think that's what, what Barnsley did now, now in terms of with, with me. You know, I was saying before, Dig, so I never played with you when you when you were on the left wing or left midfield. I played you in the middle. And what I loved about you was you simplified the game. You made the game look easy. Now, that that is an hard trait to do because people want to... People don't want to do easy things because they think it's too easy and they, they think people don't want to see that. But... The, the more the more you simplify the game, the better you become, and I think that's probably what you did towards the to the end of your Liverpool career. You you just control play, and 
you, you, you made the game look easy by doing the simple things. Now, people didn't want to do that because they think, well, I'm too good for that. But you never. You, you want to do the simple things because you understood the game a little bit more than most. Well, I had to do that, Robbie, because, I mean, I wasn't playing a player like that a few years earlier because, of course, before I ruptured my kiddies tendon, I was doing the things that you're talking about. If you're going to be a superstar player, you have to do certain things. Look at Steve, yourself scoring goals. But then, of course, if you look at what's required in midfield in terms of making Steve McManaman then become the new John Barnes, I can then say I'm going to be the old John Barnes and do those things because Steve McManaman then wouldn't be getting the ball. And it's more than... It's more to do with the fact that I, when I ruptured my Achilles tendon, I wasn't able to do that anymore. But I appreciated that for other players in those positions, and no position is more important than any other position. However, if you want your top players to be like a number 10 like McManaman, or for you to be scoring goals, John Barnes can't play in midfield where I'm going to get more ball than anybody else, but want to dribble and want to do what Steve does and want to score goals. So I always remember when I was that type of a player, but what Ronnie William used to do for me and how unappreciated he was. And I understood that he made me the player I was because he gave me the ball at the right time in the right areas. And as well as I couldn't, because when I rubbed him with Kitty's tendon, I was lucky to even play again. That's what the surgeon told me. I was happy to be there for the next five, six years. So as much as I may have wanted to do the other things, A, I realized I couldn't. And B, I recognized that in the team, for the team to do what they wanted to do, I had to be giving the ball to you and to Steve McManaman to do that. that that's brilliant, I think, because that, that's you understanding your role and knowing what you need to do. Some people can't sort of fathom that, though, can they? Well, the thing about it is I was brought up that way with Graham Taylor. Because at Watford, it's all about, in your position, what is your requirement of your position in relation to the way the rest of the team plays? And as much as I was playing on the left wing for Watford and I was required to get the ball, go down the line, put crosses in and do what I do, he, sometimes I play midfield, sometimes I play left back. And he said, when you play in this position, this is your role. And of course, you would know, if you look at what Ajax have done in terms of rotating the old Ajax, maybe not so much now, in terms of putting different players in different positions. And when you have Karen Seedorf, for example, going to play right back, as he has done growing up, he doesn't play right back like Clarence Seedorf, he plays it like Michael Reisinger. So as much as he's, he's able to get the ball and do what he normally does, if he plays in a right back role, that's not what's required of him. So I understood that even when I was John Barnes, 23-year-old superstar playing for Liverpool, I understood that if I played in a different position, then I would have to do different things. So when I went into midfield, I knew that, okay, maybe I can take him on here, but that's not what I need to do. So that's the way I was brought up with Watford and even at Liverpool. Because at Liverpool, you're a Liverpool fan. You remember Sammy Lee and, and players like that who weren't as appreciated as maybe Kenny Dalglish or Ian Rush or whoever else, but they had a role to fulfil which was necessary for the team to be successful. Just on that, John, you, you mentioned there Graham Taylor, the late, great Graham Taylor, God rest his soul. You mentioned King Kenny and Kenny Dougleish took you to Liverpool. Sir Bobby Robson, another who has since passed on. Three greats, three real greats of British football. Who would you have said had the biggest impact on you? Not so much as a footballer, but as a man as well. Graham Taylor. Because I was a 17-year-old boy, got on the team, didn't know what professional football was all about. He brought a discipline, a structure. And as much as the structure that we had was not what people would necessarily want, it was long balls and fighting and very aggressive. However, it was a structure of understanding your roles within that structure. Liverpool was exactly the same, but in a different philosophy in terms of the way it's played. Everybody has a part to play. Beat Steve McMahon, Ronnie Whelan, um, Barry Venison, and they all have a role to play for the, for the, for the, the collective to be successful. So it was, it was similar in terms of the understanding and of course, Bobby, because Bobby was just great in terms of rubbing you on the back and giving you massaging your ego and telling you he wanted you to do great things. But, but, but with Kenny, Kenny was fantastic. But Kenny was a product of Liverpool. So I felt I was influenced by the Liverpool way and Robbie would have brought up in what the Liverpool way was. Kenny didn't start that Liverpool way. Kenny just continued it, which is why they were successful. 
Graham Taylor started the Watford way, which then we finished second to Liverpool in the league. And all of these players came from the, sec the second and third division. Luther Blissett played in the fourth division. I was a young 17-year-old player, but all of those players, when we finished second to Liverpool in the league, all of those players, bar one, Martin Patchen, who we signed from Wolves, who got injured and never played for us, came from the fourth division to the top division and finished second in the league because of what Graham Taylor did. You, you could never ever see not like that today, could you? No, mainly because, of course, I'm not saying it was easier back then, but of course, what teams didn't do, Premier League teams, top division teams, didn't just buy all the best players. You know what I mean? So therefore, a team could come up and, and be competitive, as we've seen in the past. And that's why what Leicester did was incredible. Um, as much as they spent a bit of money, but you, you're not going to see that now because, of course, money plays such a big part in having the best players. Dick, Dick what was your role into, into Wofford? So uh, you've just spoke about Graham, Graham Taylor and your situation under him. How did you actually get to, uh, to become a, uh, a Wofford player? Because uh, you were playing for a team, was it Sudbury Court, was it? So I went to a rugby school. So I, I didn't play football at school, but I played. When I came to England at 13, I went to a rugby school, but I played for a local club. Like I'm sure, well, maybe, were you at the academy from when you were six and seven and eight? It, it was different there. We had, we had a centre of excellence. A centre of excellence, but Liverpool knew who you were. Whereas when I was, came to England at 12, 13, there was no academies. No one knew who you were. Um, especially as I didn't go to a, a football school. So I, I played rugby at school. I played for a local club, Stowe Boys Club. Then at 16, I was too old to play youth football. So I played for a, a team, Sudbury Court. Um, it's like playing, not even for Marine. It's like, you know, they didn't have a stadium, five people watching. One of them happened to be a taxi driver who saw me, knew a scout. He asked the scout to come and watch me. I didn't even know the scout was there. So I just got a phone call to then say, do you want to come to Watford to train at 16? I was going, to, I was going back to Jamaica because my dad was a diplomat. He got recalled back to Jamaica. Hey, people get into trouble nowadays asking you to come and watch this football game. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know. yeah. In fact, it was around that time as well, but you know, I wasn't too big and butch for all of that. But I got offered a scholarship to go to Washington University, a football scholarship, which I was going to take. And then Watford said, just before, six months before, come and train. This is at 16 years old, coming up to 17. So I went to train. Um, played one reserve game, and then my mom and my dad, my dad got recalled back to Jamaica, and Watford offered me a contract. So I was lucky to be spotted. So if a taxi driver didn't stop, I would never have been spotted. So that's what, how lucky you had to be back then, because you know nowadays, any six, seven-year-old kid, he's, he, all the clubs know them, whereas in my day, so many good players were never spotted. You growing up, Robbie, I'm sure you played with players who, who may not have been spotted who weren't given opportunities, who were equally, well, not equally as good as you, but who could have made it. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. I think the luck plays a part with, with everyone. Um, I mean, I think back to, obviously, me getting into the, uh, the Liverpool side, you know, scoring a goal. So if I hadn't scored, then, you know, if players hadn't got injured, then, you know, I mightn't have got in. So I think luck does play an element of everything. Yeah, but I think from your point of view, Robbie, I think what would make it more difficult for you is that you were a goal scorer. So you're not going to get the ball and dribble around five players and look great if you don't score, if you know what I mean. You know what I mean? Where Stephen can, I could as a dribbler. So if someone comes to watch you play and you've scored loads of goals, but in that game, you don't score a goal, it's not as if like, you know what I mean? You're going to show that you've got great pace. And maybe when you're younger, you used to, you know, be taller. And, and, and <laughs> Well, I was, well I, I was taller when I was younger, Dick, yeah. I was taller. <laughs> but listen, I'm about to bring you around to my house and show you my VHS sets because... I used to dribble quite. I uh, I used to dribble quite a lot actually. Get on this thing, right? I uh, I actually got into trouble once playing for Liverpool. So we played. Um, I think it was an A team game against uh, Berry, and uh, I was. Um, I had the ball. I was. I was. I was not not your skillful, but I was all right. I could dance around players, and we played Berry in the A League, and I danced around a few defenders, danced around the keeper, 
uh, and put the ball on the uh, on the goal line. Got on my hands and knees and ended it in. Right. <laughs> Honestly, I've never been shouted at as much in my life. I had our co- our coach Sammy Lee at the time was absolute mother of me. The coach of the, the Berry team was shouting, "Get the number nine in Ward nine. I was I was absolutely terrified for less, to the rest of the game. We ended up getting beat 6-2, right? And it was my fault. I had to write a letter to Berry and everything just to apologise for what I did. Graham Taylor, Graham Taylor would have had you off, I can tell you. Oh. Just on that, you, you say Graham would have had you off then, John. You move at Watford at 17. What impact did he have? Let, let's talk through Graham and how he was with you. Was it an arm round the shoulder? Was he in, encouraging more than anything else? No, not at all. Back then, there were no arms around the shoulders. Shouting, screaming. That's the way it was. This is 1980. I mean, that's why Graham could find it hard to manage now. Like Alex Ferguson, to many, in many respects. Because back then, you sunk or swam. You know what I mean? They weren't going to... He was a disciplined person. He would look at your character. And if you weren't the character that could take being shouted at and being screamed at, and when things aren't going well, you never made it. That was not just me. That was not just Graham. That's the way football was back then. You had to be tough. You had to put up with it. Racism, anybody shouting at you. If you can't take that, you're not for us. So... Um, but I was brought up in a disciplined way with my dad anyway. You know, he was a colonel and army officer, so therefore I was brought up in a very disciplined way in that life is tough, life is hard, you've got to get on with it. Look, I, I know your story about your, your, your father and obviously your upbringing, and it was disciplined, so that, that upbringing certainly helped you get into the Wofford way and into the Graham Taylor thinking, uh, way of thinking. Not just, and, and people find it hard to believe because they look at me as a, as a, as a left wing and the way I played for Wofford and Liverpool and they think you just play off the cuff and you don't play with any responsibility. When I first went to my young f- football club, Stowe Boys Club, I told you about them, I came to England, 12 coming up to 13, went to Stowe, great side. We were winning 10 nil every week, fantastic side. Because we're winning every week, you know when you're young, Robbie, like you, obviously, everybody wants to score goals. So for my three years, until I was 16, I played as a centre-back. Never played on the left wing, never played up front. I was a centre-back. Growing up in Jamaica as a six, seven, eight-year-old, I was always a number 10, a flamboyant player, scoring goals. That's still the player I was. So when I played for three years at Stowe Youth Club, I was never a centre-back. I was always in training and stuff. I'd be scoring goals, playing centre-forward. But because no one wanted to play at the back, because of my dad telling me my responsibilities to the team, whatever they needed, I was the only one who was willing to play centre-back. So for three years, I played as a centre-back every single year. I went to London trials, got into the London school club team as a centre-back. That's where I played. But of course, because the coach, everybody knew I wasn't a centre-back. When I went to the big men's team, Sudbury Court, at 16 years old, in non-league football back then, little skinny 16-year-old, I can't play centre-back. So I went and played left wing because I was always an attacking player. So the point I'm trying to make is that I always did what was responsible for the team. And even when I, when I played for, for Watford, we played against Liverpool in the Cup, and I'm a left winger. I'm playing for England. Kenny Dalglish says to me, sorry, not Kenny, Graham Taylor, the manager, says to me, right, today, he told me at 2 o'clock, 2 o'clock, he picked the team, and he went, right, you're not playing left wing today. You're playing in midfield, and you're going to man-mark John Walk. But I knew what my role was because I watched Kenny Jacket and the midfield players, so I knew what I had to do. So as much as I knew what I had to do, we lost one in a walk he scored. <laughs> <laughs> Did you play there again? <laughs> yeah. Walker got a kick apart from the goal. Because, you know, John Walker was just good at ghosting into the box and scoring, never got involved. So I marked him out of the game until he scored the winner. <laughs> and, and you would have got a bollocking at the full-time whistle as well, I take it, John? Not really, no. Um, because, as, as I said, everybody made a match to him, a match to him, a match to him. And, and Liverpool were a better team. So to lose one nil to Liverpool is no disgrace. And I, and I played well in a defensive role, apart from 
I just let it run that one time. But. Yeah, and you clearly made your mark because, of course, fast forward to 1987. Uh, and forgive me, uh, indulge me here, John. It's the story that you were offered to Fergie and Man United. Is that a true story? No, it's not. No, it's not. I never knew of Manchester United's interest. And it's always a nice story at the end whereby Fergie may have said a throwaway line that, you know, he regrets not signing me. And maybe that may have been a possibility. But I don't think any contact was made. I don't know whether he, because of course, back then, there isn't a speculation as there is now. There isn't a connection as there is now of me knowing that Fergie may have spoken to Graham Taylor. Back then, you just didn't know. So the only thing I knew of interest was, was Liverpool. And of course, maybe Fergie had been thinking about it. And then once Liverpool came in and they knew Liverpool were in, that was it. Because you didn't have different teams following the same player. Like, for example, when Brian Robson was going to Man United, England captain, I'm sure Liverpool did say, oh, let's see if we can get him first. Once you're going to go to a club, you're going to go to a club. So, um, and Liverpool, don't forget, came in for me in January, but I didn't go until the end of the season because Graham Taylor actually said to me, Liverpool have come in for you. You're going to go to Liverpool, but you're not going to go now because Watford weren't struggling, but you're going to stay to the end of the season, then you're going to go. So I knew I was going to Liverpool. Liverpool knew I was going to come. And, you know, that was it. No one else, no one else came in. How did, how did you feel about that thing? Obviously, waiting until the uh, the summer. Oh, no, listen. Graham Taylor managed everybody's career. He said the same thing to Luther Blissett. He said, you're going to go to AC Milan. And then you're going to come back. So I trusted Graham. You know what I mean? I didn't think, oh, I want to go to Liverpool now. Because he said, the best thing for your career is not to go to a club now. Because in January, you know, are you going to get into the team straight away? Are you going to get used to the way they play, used to training? It's always best to go to a club at the start of a season. That's why I don't like this January transfer window because you don't know what's going to happen. You always get the best at the end of the season. So, and Graham Taylor told me, you're going to go to Liverpool at the end of the season. So, I, I, I was happy. I just got on with it. Do you remember the, the change? And, and, and listen, what a team that Watford side was. And, and I'm not being disrespectful in any way, shape or form towards Watford. But that first day arriving at Liverpool, you're walking into that changing room, John. You've got Sir King Kenny. He's your, your boss, obviously. What do you remember of, of day one and, and the quality that was on show on that day one in training? You didn't see the quality in day one at all. Because, of course, <laughs> quality in Liverpool when they start to play football. But, of course, they want pre-season training. You don't play football. All you do is run. And, in fact, they didn't run. Because at Watford, when we're doing 10-mile runs and we're doing sprints and we're doing doggies and we're so disciplined, at Liverpool, if you can get away with cheating and not running, that's what you do. <laughs> I came to Liverpool expecting it to be the most professional club. Because I can... Let me explain something about Watford. At Watford, we train so hard, right? And what Graham Taylor did. And now you have heart rate monitors. You can see if anybody's working hard. Back then, you didn't. You don't know how hard players are working. Graham Taylor had a stopwatch. And every single day in training, you were on the stopwatch and everything you did. In the sprints, you know, the warm-up sprints, yeah? And if you all of a sudden didn't do the time, which is close to your best time, he'd be screaming and shouting at you. I'll give you an example. We had a cross-country run at Watford where it was about three and a half miles. We did every week. Every week, regardless of whether we've got midweek matches, we're doing it on a Tuesday. Obviously, if you're playing Tuesday night, not. But if you're playing Wednesday, on a Tuesday, you're still doing a cross-country run. The cross-country run, my best time in the cross-country run would have been, let's see, it's about three miles. Let's say it's 14 minutes 50, yeah? Now, in the 60 years, I would did it every week I was at Watford, my worst time, my worst time could not have been less than 30 seconds of my best time. Now, I may think 30 seconds is a long time, but don't forget, in January when it's muddy and it's winter and it's snow, and in the summer when you first start to train, it's nice. So therefore, what I'm saying is that you have to put it into training every single day. And that is how you get the consistency. So I now come to Liverpool and we're training. And I remember once we had to run back to the ground from, from, from Melwood because we used to go to the ground and then 
get on your on a coach and go to the training ground, then get back on the coach, go back to the ground. Because Bob Pace, Bill Shanky like the camaraderie of not going to the training ground. We didn't have a shower there. And then they said, run back, preseason, run back. So me and Peter Bridge are running up the Queen's Drive to go home, to go back to the ground. And Steve and, and Ronnie Wheeler and some of the players have hitched the lift because <laughs> people are going to stop. They've jumped in a car to get a lift. And then when they get to the Arkle, Kenny and Ronnie are waiting at the at the at the at the, um, at the, the big gates and looking down and they're ducking down in the car saying, let us out here. So I'm thinking, how can these be the best team in the country when all of a sudden everybody's just like messing around? But when the football started, and you see they do it properly. But in terms of the physical work, I just thought this is ridiculous. Hey, hey, Digger, did so? Uh, did Rushy and Ronnie Reelan get out in the Arkles and I go and have a few pints as well? <laughs> Honestly, it was incredible. The training was unbelievable because I remember then when you're doing doggy runs, you're doing shuttles where you have to run. And as I said, Graham Taylor timed everything. Me and Peter, and they say, go. So you're running. And then me and Peter could be sprinting because you want to, this is how we've been brought up. When we get to the line to turn to come back and we're like five yards in the front, by the time we've turned to come back, They've already turned five yards short and they're beating us. So I said to Ronnie Moran, Ronnie, I said, what's happening here? Haven't you got to go to the line? I thought we had to go to the line. Ronnie Moran just puts his hand up and he says, happens in a game, son. Happens in a game. <laughs> what it means is that if you can cheat and you can get away with it and a referee doesn't see it, do it. <laughs> <laughs> Robbie, not... Robbie learned very well from that, let me tell you. <laughs> that's, why, that's why I was quiet for ages there. <laughs> The Robbie Fowler Academy, the most inspirational 16 to 18 education provider. You can find out more on the official website, robbiefowleracademy.co.uk. You took to Liverpool like a duck to water. You were, you were a PFA player of the year that year. Liverpool had success, first season there. Uh, and you went on to enjoy an unbelievable career at that football club. But you know why that was? was because what Liverpool did, I mean, now you see what happens with young players. Young players have a good... 18, 19 years old, play well. Six months later, they cost £20 million, £30 million, go to a big club. You can see the inconsistency because they haven't shown a level of consistency over a period of time for you to know whether they can make it or not. Secondly, what is the character? So what Liverpool did back then is they watched you for a long period of time before they signed you. They looked at your character first. I played for Watford for six years. I was in the England team for four years before I played for Liverpool. Four years. So it's not as if I started playing for England, scored that goal in Brazil at 20, 19, 18 for, oh, Liverpool are going to come and sign me. No, you have to show you can do this week in, week out. Because when you come to Liverpool, we don't, we don't want to make mistakes. We don't want to give you time to settle in. Peter Beardsley, five years at Newcastle. Ray Houghton, six years at, at, at West Ham, showing that you can do that. So when you say it went so well, it's really because they did their homework. They looked at your character first and foremost. My favourite player, and Robbie would have played with him with England, and he's not played with him, but he would have been his manager, I'm sure, was Glenn Hunt who's a different manager to a player. And he's an unbelievable player, technically unbelievable. When I played for England, he's in the team, Sammy Lee on, on the bench, but Sammy Lee's winning the European Cup and Sammy Lee's playing at Liverpool, winning the league. And Glenn Hoddle is technically the greatest player. He could never play for Liverpool, not because he isn't good enough, but if you look at the type of player he was and the character, Liverpool looked at your character first and foremostly, without us even knowing. I never thought I was a Liverpool player. Watford play a long ball game, get down the line, put crosses in. Liverpool don't play that way. So how, why do Liverpool want me? Because they saw something in me that they I could adapt to play the Liverpool way. Whereas you wouldn't sign a player. It's like signing Vinnie Jones to come and play for, for Liverpool. Who's a, who, a Liverpool player technical game. But they see things in you that you don't even see in yourself. Uh, and and then, uh, of course, and it's interesting you, you pick up on that point there, John, about the fact that you didn't think they were watching you. And I, I look at players today, and, and Robbie and I have spoken about this in previous editions. Is, is that perhaps a, a, an issue with the modern game that... 
unfortunately you go on a run of three, four games, you score a goal, the hype machine starts up and all of a sudden you're earning stupid money and, and you've got your big move when perhaps you're not ready for it. Well, not only not ready for it, does that type of football suit you? Because when I went to Watford, obviously they knew I could play the way I played. Coming to Liverpool, I thought, well, how is this going to work? And I tell you, because I thought I was going to play up front. Because I played up front, and of course, very much like Rashford and Marshall, everybody, all these wingers want to play up front, don't they? Everyone wants to be a centre-forward. And Robbie will tell you how hard it is to actually do that. But everybody who is a, a fancy player, number 10, and Rashford, Martial, they all want to play up front. Raheem Sterling, they want to, but then all of a sudden, when you see how hard it is up front, you think, hang on a second, I don't really fancy that. But because I played up front against Liverpool many times and scored goals, I thought they wanted me to come and play up front. John Aldridge was taking over from Ian Rush. He's going to need a partner. So they've signed me. And I thought, right... I'm playing up front. Lovely, the way Liverpool play. One week later, they signed Peter Beardsley. And I thought, well, he's going to play up front. Where am I going to play? So I said to Kenny, well, where am I going to play then? He did, you're playing on the left. And I said, yeah, but Liverpool don't play with the left winger the way I play for Watford. He goes, don't worry, you'll work it out. And that's when I started coming in off the line and doing different things. Never done that at Watford before. Coming into the hole, coming in off the line, playing one touch. My whole game for Watford was just going down the line, putting crosses in. But because they had seen me play holding midfield play against John Walk, up front against Liverpool, left back once or twice. They knew that I could adapt my game to what Liverpool wanted. So it's a bit of a roundabout way. But what I'm trying to point I'm trying to make is that what Jurgen Klopp did was brilliant when he picked players to fit into Liverpool's system, regardless of how good other people think they are. We're getting away from that now, but that is the essence of what football is. Dick, did you adapt your game? So you said before about Graham Taylor, who obviously told you in January that you were going to sign for Liverpool in the summer. Did your game start to adapt then? knowing that you were going to Liverpool, or was you still the same John Barnes who was still marauding and putting the, the balls into the box? No, I couldn't have that much again then because the team didn't play that way. You see, you have to play whichever way the team plays. And Watford said, get the ball down the line, put crosses in, chase the fullback up and down, that's it. So that's all I did. So that's what I'm saying, that when Liverpool saw that I could have adapted my game, they knew I could without me even knowing it. I didn't think I... I didn't know that I was going to be able to do that. And that's why I'm saying Liverpool are so clever because, Rob, you know they don't coach you, but they see things in you that you can do without even knowing yourself. So I don't know how it works from the first day of training, but obviously that's that's the greatest thing about Liverpool. They see things in you that you don't even know you have. Yeah, Dig, I'm, I'm talking about from a purely selfish point of view, though. So you know that you're going to Liverpool. So I know you're saying that you still have to adapt to whatever Watford was throwing at you, but surely you as a player know, well, I'm not going to be doing this. So I maybe need to do stuff anyway differently than, than what is than what is the norm. But if you look at Watford, the way they play, they're so comprehensive and it's very much like Liverpool now. When the left-back got the ball, crossover runs up front, ball over the top, I'm going with the top for the flick on. If I said I'm going to come short and come in field, I'm not going to kick because Watford don't play that way. So I can then say, this is how I'm going to play for Liverpool, but I would not get a kick if I did that because Watford were so rigid in the way they played. And I suppose it's very similar to now when you're talking about Thiago playing for Liverpool and he's, one, he's our best mid- midfield player in terms of what the purists want. But in terms of the front three having to adapt to him, it's not really working because that is not how they play. So from, from Watford's point of view, I could not have then said, I'm going to you know, do things I'm going to do at Liverpool because if I got the ball and started to like, if I got the ball and I said, let me just play it in, in field, which I would do to Ronnie Whelan, for him to go down the other side, Graham Taylor would say, what are you doing? You don't do that. You get the ball, you go down the line, you put a cross in, end of story. And I just did as I, as I was told. And that is why when it worked at Liverpool, it surprised me because I thought, how the hell am I, why am I now coming in off the line, playing one touch, playing the ball around the corner? But that's, that's what I'm saying. The experience that I had of being there for six years and what Liverpool seeing in me that you are able to do it without me even knowing it. Because you know, Robbie, they don't coach you. You know what I mean? You've got to work it out yourself. So, so Dick, just going back to obviously your first year, so you, you obviously got Peter Beans there, who was tremendous, certainly in that first year. Johnny Aldridge, who was tremendous as well. 
yourself there. So you scored 15 goals, you played a year, you won the league, uh, and then obviously getting to the final. Losing the losing the FA Cup final to, to Wimbledon, which was a game that, you know, probably, I don't know, maybe 99 times out of 100, you would have beat them the way you played. But what, what actually happened on that day? It was just a bad performance, as happens. And when you have bad performances, you want it to be on a Wednesday night against Swindon, don't you? You don't want it to be in a cup final. Because the thing about it, and people talk about if you could play a game that you want to play again, and me and Jan had this, and Jan's, Jan's bright. And I've, I've said, but, and I agree with Jan, if there's a game that we could replay, that would be the game. Not the Arsenal game where we lost 2-0. The Arsenal game after Hillsborough, we played six games in two weeks. The, the whole, you know, the passion of Hillsborough and everything that had happened, it was just one bridge too far. So he said, if you play that again under those circumstances, having played six games in two weeks to catch up to, to win the league and then lose that game, you can go, that was too much. Psychologically, physically, emotionally. Whereas if you could play one game again, it'll be the Wimbledon game. It was just a bad performance. And it's interesting because, you know, not only did all of them miss a penalty, we had a goal disallowed, which could have been different had scored before they went one nil. So, but in just in terms of the performance, it was just a bad performance. Yeah, that was the that, that was a Peter Beasley goal, wasn't it? Was it a quick free kick? And oh no, 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 he brought it back for a free kick for us. He fouled Peter. He let Peter go on as Peter shot from way out, going up, and then he and he blew the whistle, brought it back, and gave us a free kick. Because he had brought instead of letting the letting the game go. That's still interesting, John. That that might come as an awful. A big surprise to an awful lot of people listening or watching this. The one game, if you could take back in a Liverpool shirt, is the FA Cup final and not that Arsenal game at Anfield. Think about under those circumstances, which means that we had a good build-up, we were fit, we were strong, we had to go into that game, we didn't play well. So if you take the Arsenal game and you say, if we didn't have to play six games in, 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 in two weeks after Hillsborough, the emotion of it, and we just say, it's one game on a one-off, Hillsborough didn't happen, it's just a one-off, yes, it'll be the Arsenal game. But you have to look at the build-up to the Arsenal game. Because I remember the interesting thing about that was that we then beat, I can't remember who it was, but we, we beat them, I think, four or five in the le- second to last game of the season, which meant we had a better goal difference than Arsenal. So we could afford to lose 1-0. Whereas I think if we had to draw the game, if we had to win the game, I think, we, 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 you know, you can never tell. But the fact that it was a strange game because we're such an attacking team that to go into a, a game knowing that you can lose and still win the league meant that we didn't play our normal game. That's interesting, Dig, where you obviously talk about obviously games that you would change. Um, now, you've you mentioned the 89 uh, Arsenal. You've mentioned the the uh, the Wimbledon 88 FA Cup final. The White Boots the... in 96, I changed that, not the game. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was going to mention. I, I always obviously bring that up. That was, that was probably the one game I would change in uh, my career more than anything. Only the simple fact that you played Man United as well. Uh, but but you've not mentioned that. So you've mentioned if any one game that you could change in, in your Liverpool career would would not be that one. It would be the uh, the Wimbledon one. Yeah, the Man United um, game was... Well, A, I don't think we were necessarily favourites to win that game anyway. You know, us losing to Wimbledon is not, is not worse than us losing to Man United, if you know what I mean. I'm not talking about in terms of us wanting to win. I'm talking about a game we should have won. Now, I think we, we could have beat Manchester United, um, but it was a terrible game. You know, they didn't play well, we didn't play well. And they get credit because they won the game. But if you just say, forget who won the game, did Man United play well? No, they didn't, but they won the game. So no one talks about it. They talk about just us not playing well. But um, in a game where we really should have won, that's why, I, that's why I say the win of the game. So for you, you think the Man United game? I think so. Uh, only be the suits. The suits <laughs> as well. So you, you just mentioned there about no one remembers Manchester United not playing well. No one remembers Liverpool. Or, everyone remembers just the white suits. 
That's, that's all anyone remembers. Well, they remember that because we lost. Now, if we won, how cool would we have been? I bet they said we're cool. That's why we won, because we had the white suits on looking like Hollywood suits. So, so we went from being cool to being a fool, didn't we? If you win football matches, they forgive you anything. Please tell me, John, you've still got the suit. I asked this question to Ian, and he said that it still fits him. Ian Rush last week, have you still got the suit? Please. I mean, Ian Rush now, you know, obviously Ian is still slim. I've just, I've, I've grown, I've grown, I've grown gracefully. So my suit, in fact, my suit didn't fit me probably a week after, <laughs> week after the game. <laughs> so my suit got ripped up like everyone else's. Well, most people's. Where's yours, Rob? My, mine's, mine's in the football museum in Manchester. Oh, you still, oh, you still have it, yeah? Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah, I, I got discarded. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to keep it and sell it. <laughs> 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 buy, an, buy another house with it, Rob, is what yeah. you're planning hey, But you know what, it? though, is what you just mentioned there about, to be fair, Dick, you know when we had the suits on, right, and obviously I'm a lot bigger now than what I was when I played, but I tried it on after I'd retired, which was obviously 10 years ago, and it fitted me still. So it must have been absolutely huge on me at the time. And to be honest, I, 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 think, it, I think they looked all right. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> And people are going on about, oh, but you know what I mean? If Brad Pitt was to wear that or Denzel Washington, they'd look cool, wouldn't they? Imagine me and Rob, Denzel Washington and Brad Pitt. But then why should stop doing that? Yeah, I, I like the way you've just uh, referred to me as Brad Pitt, Dick. <laughs> hey, I, hey I, I thank you for tuning into this week's Robbie Fowler podcast. <laughs> oh, I think it uh, oh, God. So I think it might have been, Dick, I told us a story with Rushy last week about, you know, when we walked out. So, you know, when you're a kid and you, you watch the FA Cup final and you, you watch the team all day, don't you? You watch them eating breakfast, you watch them having a the dinner, then they go to the stadium and the cameras are on them. And then they walk out onto the pitch and then the, the fans recognise them. And then the fans let out this big crescendo of noise. When we walked out in our white suits, there was just deathly silence. There was no sound whatsoever. And I honestly think to this day, I reckon the crowd thought we were the band. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, let's forget about that year. <laughs> Get you in the middle doing a rap and we'd have been, we'd have been all right there. I think it might have been, uh, was it, when did um, Southampton, Southampton win the cup in, was it 79? No, uh, 76. 76. They had a white suit on. It was all right for them, wasn't it? Yeah, but, but then Keith Weller used to wear white boots, wasn't it? It was cool, man. <laughs> all right, Dick. Dick oh, here's a Shelfie then. And I don't think anyone's ever, ever answered this properly. We've all had, obviously, ideas of who it was. Whose decision was it, by the way? Robbie, we know whose decision it was. I got stick because I was the captain, right? <laughs> now, you know what had happened. You were there because we had, you voted for the white suits as well. So don't be giving it all that whose idea was it. I joke now, yeah. J-Mo used to model for Armani, yeah? So we're going to get an Armani suit. Now, if I got a nice blue, black, grey Armani suit, you could still be wearing it now, couldn't you? You know what I mean? Giorgio Armani. Yeah. But, of course, someone said, well, what about cream? And it wasn't white. What about cream? And then, of course, because people used to like to go to the cream nightclub, as you all know. I didn't. I was more of the con. Oh, no. But it, it was decided. <laughs> So I will hold my hand up and say, I got outvoted. <laughs> so as to who actually voted for the cream suits, no one's going to admit it. But I got outvoted because they thought cream suits and Ray-Bans would look good. <laughs> it, was not my, it wasn't my idea, but I went along with it because it's a democracy. Apart from the, what they did with Donald Trump, I was like Donald Trump. They blamed me when it all slipped and went wrong. Andy's <laughs> <laughs> idea. Well, it, it wasn't my idea, anyway, that's all I know, because I look like a dickhead in it anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> I want to stay on the theme of regrets and we will move the conversation on, John. There's two, and I'm looking at you now in an England shirt. 1986, and 
actually quite recently we, we, we lost the little rascal as Sir Bobby Robson called him Diego Armando Maradona you then fast forward four years to 1990 Italia well documented I'm going over old ground here what's the one all these years later John what's the one that rankles most with you 1990 and not from my own personal point of view because of course 86 um, I came on for the last 15 minutes did what I did and people talk about you should have been on from the start that's not true because had I started, his destiny would have been changed. I could have started, could have fallen over, could have been substituted. We don't know what would have happened. So the whole idea that if you had started, things would have been different. 86, it's a little bit like the whole Wimbledon and, and Arsenal, which game would you rather play? 86, Maradona was unstoppable. And I feel if Gary Lineker had headed that ball in to make it 2-all, I think Maradona would have done something else to score and to win the game. So for, 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 for 86, it was just fantastic for me to be there. Um, I don't have any regrets. I don't think I should have started. Everybody thinks they should start, but it doesn't follow that things would have been different. 1990, but in 1990 as well, people remember the Germany game and people remember us nearly winning and that's, that's the best we played. But when I analyze not just football, life generally, you have to look at everything. You have to look at it holistically, meaning we look at Germany, our best performance, and we lost and we should have won. And we say, oh, that's terrible because we should have won. We should have lost against Cameroon. And we should have lost against Belgium. Belgium were by far better than us. And we scored and beat them. But people forget that. So looking at it all, all, all told, the Germany game is one that we possibly should have won. However, we're fortunate to get to the semi-final anyway. So, you know, it's like when fans, fan, you know, fans, football fans always say this. They look at the points we lost. And they said, if we got four more points, we would have won the league. Because we should have beaten them. We should have beaten them. We should have beaten them. But they don't think, what about the games we should have lost? And we're lucky to win points. That's why I have no regrets in, in it. Life is life. You know, you try your best 100%. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. That's probably similar to, uh, to, to my take on my England career. In the, um, was it 96? Euro 96. So the first game we played Switzerland, drew 1-1. Uh, so out of the five games England played to get to the semi-final, uh, they only won uh, two games. And, and, you know, and everyone goes, oh, you know, it was a tournament they should have won. But you forget about the games that you just manage to scrape through, you know, the games on penalties. I remember watching Spain. Spain should have beaten England. We won on penalties, but Spain should have beaten us. Yeah, I know. I remember it. And then the uh, 20 years later, you bring this big documentary out on it. Brilliant. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking for the Wales one. Uh, looking forward to the Wales one. No, but Robbie, you know, with your England career, I look at it the same as my England career. When people talk about it, they see what you do for your club. And they say, why don't you do that for your country? They did it with me. And of course, you look at the goals you scored on them. And, and, and the player actually were. And what I say is that if you want me to do what I do for England, for Liverpool, play the same way. Play in the exact same way. Now, the way England played wasn't suited to you to be scoring goals because, of course, you then had players who, who instead of giving, like when I played in midfield for Liverpool, I'm giving the ball to Mac, I'm giving the ball to you to do what you do. They were the ones doing, doing that and not giving the ball in the right area to score the goals. Fans don't see that. They just see scoring goals for Liverpool, and then for England, they go, well, why are you doing it for England? And it's because the way England played, the other players in the team weren't doing what they should do for, to allow you to score goals. I mean, I don't know how you feel, but I, I saw that with you. Yeah, I, I just I never really... With England, I, I never obviously had a great England career. It was because I just didn't enjoy it. No, I didn't enjoy it because I wasn't playing. I wanted to play all the time. And if you go down and you feel as though you're a bit part player all the time, then you know it, it's hard for you to get comfortable and it's hard for you to enjoy it. And I never, ever enjoyed it. So, you know. Well, that's why, that is why there are certain players who are comfortable being big part players. They just have to be involved. And there are certain players who want to be the main players. You know what I mean? And you were one of them who wanted to be a main player. And of course, because that wasn't happening, 
So it's got nothing to do with, with anything. Because as I've said all along, as I said, Alan Shearer, all of them, you were the best finisher. And if they got you to play in the right way in terms of what would suit you, then you, you would score those goals. But people don't see it that way. On that, John, just in terms, and I hate to labour this point, but in terms of the lowest point then of your career, mitigating circumstances for Arsenal in 89, you've talked eloquently there about the fact in 1990 England rolled their luck on one or two occasions. When have you been at your lowest, the most dejected that you felt after perhaps a defeat or a moment in your career? I don't get, I don't get dejected and I don't get elated. I'm like that. I go a little bit happy and a little bit unhappy. I think, I, I think I've seen you elated plenty of times, by the way. I'm not talking about on here, though, can I? <laughs> <laughs> it's normally coming out of the county at two o'clock in the morning. Right? <laughs> when I rocked up Achilles tendon, because, you know, when people talk about the glass being half full or half empty, and people say that if you think the glass, the glass is, is half empty, then you're negative. If you think it's half full, then, you know, at least at least it will be positive. My outlook on life generally is the glass is always full. The glass is always 100% full. What that means is that even if it's half full, that's as full as it's going to be at this period of time, so you have to make the most of it. So when I rocked up my kiddies tendon, I thought I wouldn't play again. And then all of a sudden I started to jog and I couldn't sprint, but I thought at least I'm playing football. So I came back to do as well as I could. And as much as you could say I enjoyed my time and the way I played before then, and then for six, seven years after that, I was a different type of player and I wasn't getting the praise and the fans were saying, you're getting old and you can't run anymore. I still got enjoyment out of playing football. And that's what I wanted to do. So not only having no regrets, I, didn't have, I don't have low points. I don't have low points because you just do as well as you can. And if you do well, you do well. As long as you do it with authenticity, integrity, you try as well as you can. And then if people are going to criticize you for whatever and things aren't going that well, as long as you give 100%, I'm happy. Dick, you just saw that you know regrets, and I mean regrets is obviously a, a tough word. But I mean, what about your your managerial career up at Celtic? You know, obviously we, we see obviously Celtic and Rangers now, who are obviously the, the the pinnacle of Scottish football, and we see Stephen doing really well. Um, what 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 do you what do you take on your tenure up at Celtic as as manager? Well, once again, it's no regrets because I regret things I have control over. I have no control over, over what happened at Celtic. All you have control over is what you do. And what I did at Celtic, I just, I, well, I didn't have, I still have, because it's not going to change. I've got a 65.5% win rate at Celtic. 65.5% win rate, which was the second after Jock Steen. Martin O'Neill came. He, and of course, Stephen's win record now is 67%, but he's been there for three years. In his first two years, he had a much less one, but because he's been given more time. So I think if I'd given more time, maybe things could have changed. We don't know. But I, I have no regrets because I did as well as I could. And if people are then going to decide that this is not good enough, then you're going to get the sack. There's nothing you can do. And you know, as a football manager, the hardest thing is when you lose a game or something goes wrong and they say, what do you do wrong? And you hear football managers say this a lot now. Um, we have to learn from our experiences and we have to do, I would do things differently. First of all, as a football manager, you don't know what you did wrong. You haven't got a clue because you make the decision that you think this is right. Now, what you do know is that you have options and those options could be different. The option to, to do something else could be different, but that option that you have may not have worked. So, you know, when you go, I shouldn't have brought that substitute on, I should have brought that one on. If you brought the other substitute on, you may have lost four in instead of two nil. You really don't know. So when people talk about, you know, their reasons why, and you have to explain why, and you would have do those, you really have not, like when Argentina 86, and people go, oh, if you're on from the start, you really do not know. All you know is the options you have, but those options may not have worked either. It's all hypothetical, isn't it? Yeah, yeah I'm right in saying, John, uh, your tenure at Celtic, Henrik Larsson, broken leg in Lyon? 
The two most important players we missed. Henry Clausen broke his leg in November. We're only four points behind Rangers then. And then Paul Lambert broke his jaw, who was our captain. And those are our two most inspirational figures. And once we lost them, I always knew we'd win enough matches to finish second. But of course, that was that was never going to be enough. Now, give me, and Rob, I think this fella who I'm about to mention was a teammate of yours. The enigma that was Mark Viduka. He was agitating. He was, I think he left for Leeds. Was it in the January or the end of that season? Am I right in saying that, John? Yeah, he left when Martin O'Neill came. Martin realised. Because and the thing about Mark is, man, Rob would know Mark. He's a great player. He's a good lad. He's, he's a bit flaky. Um, and don't forget, before the year before I came, the year before I came, he already ran back to Australia, if you remember. So at the start of the season when I came, he wasn't coming back. So I had to phone him in Australia and said, Mark, come back, you know, come and play X, Y, Z, blah, blah, blah. And why that was, was because he didn't want to come to Celtic. When he left Croatia Zagreb, whichever club it was, he wanted to go to Italy. But Celtic offered money up front. The Italian club wasn't. So they actually said to him, you've got to go to Celtic. So he came to Celtic. Things weren't going well. So, of course, he had a bit of a nervous breakdown. He left. But then when he came back, as he had to, things started off really well because he's scoring goals with Henrik. Up until Henrik broke his leg, you know, four points behind Rangers, he's winning 5-0, he's scoring, he's playing really well. Then all of a sudden, when Henrik broke his leg, he came in and he said, right, he wants a new contract. Or he said to me, I want a new contract or I can leave on a free transfer. No, I can leave for what it was, $2 million. And I said, Mark, why, why is that? He said, because the chairman, when he left and he had a nervous breakdown, the chairman said to him, we want you to come back, come back and give it a go. If you're not happy, you can go. That's what he said to him. So we didn't know this. So when Mark, all of a sudden, Henrik broke his leg and Mark came in two weeks later to say he wants a new contract or he wants to go because the chairman said he could go if he's not happy. But I said, you are happy. You're scoring goals. You're playing well. He goes, but the chairman said I could go. We didn't know this. So we went to the chairman and we said to the chairman, did you tell him that? He went, yeah, 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 but it's not in writing. And I said, it doesn't matter if it's not in writing or not. Once he gets it in his head, so from then, he down tools. So there we are, four points off the top. This is December. We lost Larson. We lost Lambert. He now doesn't want to play because he then, and of course, because I think that he knew he could earn more money elsewhere. And then he went to Leeds. So it was just not a happy camp. Now, the thing is that forget about how good you are. If the harmony is not right. Yeah. Dick, did, when you talk about obviously Paducah and like the harmony, you, you, you spell up at Celtic now. Everyone always talks about the Eddie and Vanessa Caledonian Thistle game. Yeah. Did, did he refuse to play that game or? No, or, or... at half time, he refused to go back on. Wow. Now, once again, you have to look at the character and how to. Now, Robbie, you know, and someone right at the start, they asked me about um, was Graham Taylor, you know, put his arm around you and stuff like that. No, because back then, as you know, the manager screams, shouts, you get on with it. Now, of course, as football changed, you've got to be careful how to speak to people. Now, what had happened was half time, we're losing 1 0. We're not playing well. The harmony's not great, so everybody's unhappy. But anyway, we can beat Inverness Cali Thistle. Half time comes. Then he's in the dressing room and Eric Black, my assistant, then, and of course, you would have heard this many times. This is what British managers say. And he goes to Mark, flipping out Mark. He says, oh, you're cheating because he wasn't trying. He goes, you call, you call me a cheat? You call me a cheat? So, you know, you have to be careful how you speak to certain players. He then takes his top off. And I said, what are you doing? He goes, I'm not playing. He says, I'm not going back out. He gets in the bath. I said, are you refusing to go and play in the second half? He goes, yes. That's when Wright, he had to come on. Um, and Mark and Mark didn't go on. And at the, after the game, it was like, what am I going to say to the press? Because we've lost the game now. A player refu- refused to play. Do I, do I say to the press? And of course, the chairman said, don't say anything because, you know, you didn't want people to know that Mark had refused to play, blah, blah, blah. He said, you'll be fine. You know, we'll ride this out. You know, the fans are not going to be happy. But by the time we win next week against St. Mirren, it'll be fine. And they are sat me the next day. 
And again, kind of a, an obvious answer to this would be no, but in a kind of weird, perverted way, John, did you enjoy your spell at Celtic? I love the football because, of course, we're playing great football. We scored lots of goals. Yes, the fans were unhappy because there was a bit of an agenda. And, of course, in the press, you know what the press are like? They don't like you. They're not playing well. So I didn't like the politics of the club um, in terms of people wanting to, to, to interfere. Um, the press situation was horrendous because I was just getting, you know, even from managers up there. I remember Ebi Skovdal, you know, we played against Aberdeen. The first game of the season, we beat them 6-0 away. We played them, we beat them 6-0, 5-0 and 7-0. Three games we played, three games. Every Scovdale was still saying, oh, you know, they're a bit naive, he's a naive manager, blah, blah, blah. Rangers are stronger. And a lot of the managers, Bobby Williamson, I don't know if you know Bobby, he was the only one. Yeah, Kilbala, could he? Good guy, good guy. And he's the one who's the only one. He never supported me, but every time they're asking managers, because it's like, what do you think about John Barnes at Celtic? Oh, he's inexperienced, blah, blah, blah. Never mind repeating them. He was the only one. So there was always this thing about, you know, am I the right man for the job? And even though we're playing well, we're not, we haven't got it right at the back or we're conceding goals, but we've won most of the games. And it was just a horrible experience that was a horrible experience of just everything being negative towards me even when and in fact i remember saying to my, my wife i said to my wife because we, the kids were going to go to fetish school in edinburgh i was going to live between edinburgh and scotland and i remember and this is don't forget we won 11 games drew one lost one that's in the first 13 matches after six games when we won all the games we lost one we won six and we're playing well and we looked at a house and got the kids in school and i phoned up and i said we don't get in the house here and the kids aren't coming up. He goes, because I won't be, I won't last there. He goes, I will not be here by the end of the year. Because I knew if we're doing okay in the first 13 games, 1-11, drawn one, lost one, and I'm still getting all this stick. If we go through a sticky patch, as I'm bound to, I've got no chance. So I, I knew from the November that it wasn't going to last. And then, of course, Henry broke his leg and then I knew it was never going to last. That's unbelievable. That though, you think that when you, you think of, well, 1-6 out of 6 and you're... You lost one in the first 13 games and you knew deep down that you knew that you wasn't going to stay there long. Absolutely. Unless we're going to continue to win every game, which you know you're not going to. You know what I mean? So I knew that as soon as you go through a sticky patch, that got no chance. Dig, is that the expectations? Is that the expectations of Celtic as a club? Is that the expectations of the fans at Celtic to just like demand and want you to win every single game? Yeah, but don't forget, they will also give you, depending on whether you are affiliated to Celtic, if you're a local boy, you'll be given longer. Depending on whether they believe in you, whether they trust you, you'll be given longer. Don't forget, listen, as a manager, you're going to get the sack. Regardless of who you are, you lose enough games because you're going to start getting a bit of stick now, which is ridiculous, but this happens. So I understand that. But if things are going okay and you're getting stick, you know when you go through a sticky patch. So it's not, and that is why Rangers have been fantastic because don't forget, this is Steven's third year. And for the Rangers managers previously, they were given one year then sacked. But with Steven, first year they didn't win. But, you know, but then second year they didn't win. But because they knew he was the right person and by sticking together, they could do what they did. They stuck with him. Whereas they're too quickly. And look at Jurgen. Don't forget Jurgen's first year at Liverpool. There was 25 points off the top. You know what I mean? But we believed him and we knew he could do it. So you, you give him more time and you trust him. And the players see that. Once the players see that the hierarchy are supporting you, they will do what they're told. If the players see that even the, the chairman and the directors, that they don't really trust you because they can speak to them, they know they haven't got to perform. So, so Dick, do you, I mean, the obvious question to that then is, well, who, who decides who, who you should and shouldn't trust then? Well, the fans do, don't they? Because as much as you talk about the chairman and the owners, you know, they're the ones who are hiring and firing. No, they don't. The fans do. Because every time you see a new manager come, the chairman, the directors, the owners, they've got the arm around him and they go, this is the right man to the job, we believe in him. But then all of a sudden, the fans then all of a sudden start to turn against you. 
they will turn against you. If the fans don't turn against you, they won't. And the, who are the fans influenced by? The fans are influenced by the press, the media, in terms of the narrative about how good you're on what you're doing. And then, of course, if you then have a situation which Steve Bruce is now having, that's now been coming out in the press about the problems leaking from the club. We had that at Celtic every week. Every week in the press, even when we won or we lost, you had stories coming from the club about he doesn't like John Barnes, John Barnes is doing this, this is wrong, coming from the players. And then when that happens, you got no chance. Yeah, Dig, I, I mean, I, I totally understand what you say there. So everyone does get influenced by the media and if they want to write stuff about you, then obviously the the, the people who are paying to, to read these... Uh... Yeah, because, because they don't know the story, do they? All they know is what they read. So they don't know what's happening in training. They don't know what's happening between the relationship between the managers and the players. All they see is that the press has said that this is going on, which is, could be a million miles from the truth, but they don't know, do they? And what you don't do as a manager is you don't come out to the press and you, and you tell them any problems you're having or any players being disrespectful. So when you see a player not playing and you go, why is the manager not playing him? You don't know that he may have sworn at the manager, punched him, he could have had a problem. But the manager doesn't say that. All the fans see is that you're not playing the best player and, 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 and you've lost. So therefore, what's that problem? You know, so it's, that's why it's so difficult. You had the same thing in India. You remember, I saw that interview you gave with one of the reporters. I know. I, I totally agree with you. I, I mean, I, I, that's why it's interesting hearing you say exactly the same thing. So you, you come out. That's why, that's why I was asking about expectations. So my expectations this year from a, from a management will look to just to, to not finish bottom because obviously I knew what players would sign. Uh, but because obviously the, the traditions and the history of the club that I was at, you know, the, the thinking that it should be the, the higher echelons of the, uh, of the league. Now, I got a team um, who, who are 29 in the squad and only five of them have had ISL experience. So I'm thinking, well, why are the expectations so high when none of them have really achieved anything? So regardless of how good you are as or how good I am as a coach, I mean, it, it's not impossible to take a, a real inexperienced team uh, and look and try and sort of match some of the teams in the ISL who've been there for, for seven, eight years. It's, it's not you know impossible. why that happens, Robbie? Because you're Robbie Fowler. And because I'm John Barnes, so they think they're just going to change overnight. So the reality at Celtic, yeah. here's the reality at Celtic. Henry Clarkson signed a new contract for 18 grand, 20 grand a week. Paul Lambert signed for 20 grand a week. Mark Viduca was on three grand a week. Alan Stubbs was on three grand a week. Rangers had um, the Boers. They had um, the, the, all of their players were on 18 to 20 grand a week. Claudio Reina, Jorg Alberts. They had um, Michael Moulds up front. So they had better players than us because they had more money than us, which is obviously why they got into the problem they did. But if you look at it player for player, they'd won the league the year before. They've got internationals. But we're Celtics, so we're going to compete. Celtic had um, finished second the year before. Now, all of a sudden, John Barnes and Kenny Delgleish are here. Yes, we've got a chance we're going to beat them. Why? It's the same players. We're not as good as Rangers. But because it's you, things have to change. And it's like, well, hang on a second. The same thing under Tranmere. When I went to Tranmere, we lost four of our best players because he cut the budget. Peter Johnson cut the budget, so we lost four of our players. Our, our wage bill was £980,000 a year for the whole squad. Yeah, down from 1.5. But because John Barnes is there, we should be winning. That's the expectation. That's why when you have managers who haven't got the profile, they'll give them more time. But to answer your question, why they think that they should do that is because Robbie Fowler is there. It's the same player, so why should we? That's the unrealistic expectation. But that sort of lends itself into uh, maybe Stephen now. And I, look, I won't take nothing against Stephen because I think what he's done has been tremendous and it's been outstanding in all honesty. But... The, the club have backed them in terms of 
bringing players in and, and the, you said they've obviously of two years two years there and uh, the second year third year they've obviously given uh, that money because he trusts them to go out there and bring players in to bring back the good days so he's been backed and they've got better players than Celtic you need managers but you need players now Rangers couldn't compete before because Celtic had better players and year after year Rangers got better so now if you look at the, the first 11 of both teams look at the first 11 of Celtic three years ago first 11 of Rangers you're going to say well Celtic are going to win regardless of who the manager is Whereas now, Rangers have got better players than Celtic. And of course, Steve has done a fantastic job, but it's much more level, much more even. The harmony at Rangers means that's a situation. But the unrealistic expectations, when all of a sudden you look for player for player and you say, who should be the better team? Because it's Robbie Fowler. Forget about the players. It's Robbie Fowler, so we should win. It's John Barnes, so we should win. And that's not... That's not, unfortunately, how it works. Yeah, true, actually. So, Dig, just going about, obviously, Liverpool there, and you met, you touched upon it yourself there before, people are actually giving Jürgen Klopp a little bit of stick this year because they're not the, the same Liverpool, or, well, that's a debatable question, but they're not the same Liverpool as they were last year. Now, people are going on about Liverpool are not playing as well as what they can do or what they should do. Is, is it Liverpool or is it just because Man City is so good and because Liverpool are competing with Man City or... a, a are people maybe expecting a little bit too much of Liverpool this year because of what they achieved last year? Well, the expectation, and it's not just last year, Rob, it's two years. Because you mentioned the year before when we got 97 points and won the Champions League and we were fantastic, we lost one game, whatever it was. So the expectations are much higher. But I put it down to some to a simple, simple problem we have. Once you miss, we are not missing two players. We're missing four of our most influential players. Because once you miss the two centre-backs who have more more possession than everybody else to build up. And secondly, because of their pace, they can play higher up, which will push the three midfield players further forward, to push the three strikers further forward, to close down higher up the field. The fact that those two aren't there means you're playing in a different way. So those two aren't there. So what happens is you take away your two most influential midfield players, Fabinho and Henderson, and you play them at the back. So now you have Thiago and Shakira or whoever's in there, which means that the front three can't close down as I would like to, because when they close down and the ball gets played past them, and there's Henderson, Milner, Winaldo, Whoever else is there to close down, we win the ball. Whereas when they close down the ball's place past, they're all of a sudden getting straight into our back four. So therefore, it affects the way the whole team plays. Because, Robbie, I'll tell you, and I've said this right from the start, even when we were winning the league and when we finished second 97 points, I said, we haven't got the greatest individual players. As much as Jurgen Klopp, in terms of the way he's played, has suited them, for them to play the way they're doing, individually, they could go to Real Madrid, Barcelona, Man City and do what they do. Because... Salah scores so many goals, as does Mane, because of the way we play. So they miss lots of chances as well. So they're not a Lewandowski. They're not Harry Kane. They're not a Ronaldo. But, because of, but now, so all of a sudden, when one part of the jigsaw isn't there, you can see Salah will still score goals, but he's not a clinical finisher. But because of the way we play, suits him, he scores loads of goals. Now, when all of a sudden, part of the jigsaw aren't there, which means that we can't play in the same way, you can see that we're struggling from a confidence point of view. Yeah, Dig, from, so from that one, so what you're saying is like a real domino effect in terms of players playing in different positions. When Man City finished second last year, uh, obviously they lost Laporte, didn't they? And everyone was saying, oh, did, well, maybe they haven't got a player as, as a centre-half and that's probably what they're lacking and that's why they're conceding goals or that's why they're getting beat. Now, how come people aren't saying that this year about Liverpool, though? I know people mention the injuries, but people don't really go into the uh, the depths of, um, you know, of... of real problems that they're having with the injuries. What about Man City? Man City can lose five players, main players or not, but the players they have can come in and supplement that and continue to do what they do. Liverpool have got 11, 12, 13, 
I would say 13, 14 players at the most. If you can keep these 14 players playing well, focused, we can compete. If all of a sudden we miss three or four, particularly our main players, we can't compete. Because if, if Man City missed a couple of their two centre-backs, they're not bringing in a 19-year-old kid from the academy and a free transfer to go and play their assigned someone from Preston, are they? So they have a big enough squad to be able to cope with missing big players. We need to keep our front three fit all the time and our three midfield players being the same type of midfield players. We need to keep our best 11 players fit all the time for us to continue to do. So so what's the answer then? Is it is it a rebuild or is it a retweak? I think I know what the answer is, but it'd be interesting what your take is it. Is it a rebuild for the squad? I mean, you, you've mentioned it, the, the the first eleven pick itself. Yeah, maybe maybe three or four players added to that. So the the, the actual overall squad is maybe not as good as City. We know that, but is is there a a, re, a rebuild required for the squad, or is it a retweak for the uh, the actual first eleven, or the retweak for the squad? I think first of all, we have to decide what kind of a team we are. Because I mentioned about Graham Taylor and Liverpool in terms of everybody fitting in and knowing what we're doing. For Liverpool, for three years, we could play with our eyes closed. You could have three, three Jordan Hendersons in midfield, three James Millers in midfield, three Fabinho, the same type of player. The front three up front are exactly the same. The wing-backs who do what they do. And the only reason the full-backs can do what they do is because of our three midfield players who cover for them when they go. Thiago is not going to do that. Shakiri is not going to do that. So I think we have to decide whether we're going to change the way we play to then completely change to have a Thiago type of player in there to say we're going to play not the way we normally play. We're going to be more of a team like Man City who have more possession and play on a slower build-up. Or we're going to get a player in to then go back to what we what we were doing before with the three hard-working midfield players, the front three, full-backs going forward. And I think we have to decide what kind of team we're going to be first rather than we're talking about retweak or, or, or refit. Because at the moment, we're getting caught in between the two. Because the amount of times you've seen Thiago having to chase back when he can't chase back and they're running straight into our back four, what what kind of a team are we? I think we decided that we want to, we like the way we played, we're strong, we're energetic, but now let's look a bit better by having more technical players and we're now getting caught in between the two. So I think for Jurgen's point of view, he has to decide either to go back to what we had and then get players in who are going to play that type of football or say we're going to completely change the way we play, which means it's a completely new revamp of the team. I, I think that's a real notable difference between obviously the City team and the uh, Liverpool team, where the City have lots of good intricate or lots of quality intricate players who play with a lot of guile, whereas we are an energetic bunch who, who will, will work our socks off. But we haven't, we we, we lack the guile and the uh, intricacies of obviously a City. Yeah, but lacking the guile and intricacies, what do we do? We won the Champions League, we won the league, so we don't need them. You just have to do what you do. Like Watford played the way we did Liverpool, but you have to decide what kind of team you're going to be. Now, it's as if, it's as if a new manager comes to, 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 to or, or, or even Pep himself says, we're going to change the way we play. We're going to play everybody high press, strong press, winning the ball, quickly getting it forward with the players he has. They won't be able to do that. That's why I'm saying you have to then say, this is how we're going to play and not get caught in between, in between the two. And I think, which is a natural thing because I think that a lot of the players have played a lot of football. Let's talk about burnout. Let's talk about, can you play with this intensity for four, five, six years? I don't think you can. The same thing at the Dortmund. But then are you going to be able to get the type of player to recreate what you already did? And at the moment in time, we're just in this transitional period. And I think Man City went through a transitional period as well. But Dick, you, you just mentioned this, this sort of grates to me a little bit. But you know, every every surely every team goes through a transitional period every year. You know, when you're signing players. So that, that's, is, is that not normal? But we didn't go through a transitional period for three years, did we? This team has been together. Three well, players, no, but but look, that that's is it, is it a play on words? Then what I'm trying to say is, so whenever you're bringing new players in, Liverpool brought new players in. 
you know, things change or things become a little bit different from the norm per se. If you look at our three, the three, the front three, they've been there for three, four years, and they've been the main players for three, four years. Our midfield, as much as you may bring different players in, is the same type of player. Hardworking, strong. Yeah? What we needed was a Van Dijk to come in to shore up everything else and then a goalkeeper, which is what we got. So we haven't really changed, like a lot of teams, by four or five players to come into the team every year. We really haven't done that. And now, after three years, this may be the time for us to do that. So in terms of the transition, it's more to do with we haven't, we haven't got the, the, the players there at the moment that we have to then come in to replace the players who may go. If the front three then leave, are we then going to say we have players there now who are going to come and take over from Manisad and Fabinho? Have we got the midfield players to take over from Henderson, um, Wijnaldum and, and Fabinho? So that's what I mean by the transition. Yeah, but, but is, is the players out there, Dig, who would fit into that role of a Liverpool player? Well, in midfield there is, because his, his template of a midfield player, do you think that Juventus, Man United, Real Madrid, Barcelona wanted Fabinho? Or would have a Henderson? Or would have a Milner? No, because the way we play, you don't need superstar players to play for Liverpool. You have to write the right character, write the energy. And there are lots of players like that out there. You know, Keith are coming in, it maybe hasn't worked, but there are lots of hardworking players. Man City needs superstar players to come in to fit the way they play because of the way they play. We don't. So I think there are players out there if he's going to stick to what he has. And I think with, with Thiago, he's decided to go the other way and get a real world-class technical player. But that is not the type of football we necessarily play. What, what does the future hold for John Barnes? And why aren't you back involved in football anyway, Dig? Well, first of all, I mean, listen, like anyone else, a lot of players out of football who want to be in football, given an opportunity, having the trust, having the belief. Um... So I'm not given an opportunity. If it happens, I, I would I would look at it, look at it. And what and when people talk about an opportunity, what's the opportunity? The opportunity is not just being given a job; it's to be given trust, belief, and time. And that's not being given to any manager. So that's why it's difficult now for for any. And as much as I was first managing in 90, 99, 21 years ago, I've managed less than a year. So I'm like a first time manager. So you know it's, it's going to be difficult. But look, I, I mean, I've God, I've known you for years. I've played with you, and I think your knowledge of the game, I mean, is is superior to to lots and lots of people. And I think the game misses you, Dick. I, I think you should be involved in the game. Well, first of all, as I said, not only the opportunity to be given the job, being given the job, and the trust and the belief that you can actually do the job. And if things don't go well straight away, that you can stay in the job and show what you can do over a period of time. Because look at Fergie, how much time he's been given. Stevens been given three years. You know. Um, the great thing is look at Arteta because all of a sudden Arteta was talking about being struggling but they stuck with him and maybe Arsenal are coming out of it. That's why if you trust someone and you believe in them, don't just all of a sudden if things don't go well for two or three or four matches, say, write them off. As Jürgen is testament to that. So would you, would you like to get back involved in the game, Dig, from, uh, from, from a managerial point of view or maybe a sport a sporting role? Or... Um, no, just from a managerial point of view because I don't think that I could then, and I'm not talking about at the Premier League, Premier League or Championship, any, any, anywhere, but why I could get in in any other ways because I, I, the type of person I am is that I would have to be a number one. That's not to be a number one in a Premier League Championship club, even if it's going to be a League Two club, but I have to be the number one who makes the decisions on the field, training, how that actually goes. Because I couldn't work with somebody if I didn't agree with what he was saying. And as you know, as a number two or just being part of the thing, you have to go along with what the main man wants. And I couldn't, I wouldn't compromise myself. 
A big thanks then to John Barnes, the latest in a litany of big names that we have been fortunate enough to bring you on the Robbie Fowler podcast. More big names in the pipeline too. It does pay to subscribe to the Robbie Fowler podcast. Please do that. You can find us on all your usual haunts. Give us a rating as well and please do be kind. You can also find us, the YouTube channel, the Robbie Fowler podcast channel. All of our interviews in their entirety up on there as well. And you can also now follow us across social media Media at the Godpod9. You'll find us on Twitter, you'll find us on Instagram and Facebook, and a chance to win, incidentally, a framed Liverpool shirt signed by both Robbie and Stephen Gerrard. Pop along to our Instagram page for all the details on that front, and we look forward to bringing you yet another episode of the Robbie Further podcast up next. From myself, Chris, and Robbie, goodbye. This has been the Robbie Fowler podcast, powered by McDonald's. Hear it again and more of our podcasts at Dubaii1038.com.